What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of Dress Media. people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, the show is coming in hot from Paris today by way of the Marconi Transatlantic Telegraph. (laughs) We're in Paris. <laughs> Maybe not exactly, um, but by the time this episode does air, Cass and I will be wrapping up our second week of our fashion history tours of Paris. So we send you our love from the City of Lights across the Atlantic by way of the podcast. Um, not unsimilarly to the Marconi Telegraph and the way that that was actually the instrument for sending the following message to the fashion press in New York in 1914. Quote, the hairdressers of Paris are adopting a novel scheme for popularizing the latest fashion freak, namely colored wigs. 400 mannequins selected from those employed by the leading couturiers are to be provided with colored wigs in which to appear at balls and music hall resorts of Montmartre and other rendezvous of Gay Paris. At the time, a member of the quote-unquote fashion committee, no further details provided on that one, friends, uh, (laughs) but a member from the fashion committee remarked, quote, it will probably be some time before color wigs are part of women's walking attire, but we expect to see them more and more in fashionable salons and at the theater. The process of coloring is extremely delicate, and this fact makes for costliness. Only the wealthy will be able to afford a fresh wig for every fresh gown, end quote. Yes. So prized for their high artifice as symbols of status and luxury in one era, and conversely, derided in others um, for, as our guest today has noted, their associations with disguise and deception. Historically, the wig has been a repository for not only our fantasies and fears, but also our politics, our professions, and so much more. And today we are so thrilled to welcome fashion historian Jessica Glasscock back to the show to discuss her most recent book, Wigging Out Fake Hair That Made Real History. In addition to her work as a researcher and education liaison for the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for over a decade, Jessica is also the author of several additional fashion history titles, including Striptease from Gaslight to Spotlight and Making a Spectacle a Fashionable History of Glasses. We cannot wait to see what she has in store for us today. Jessica, thanks so much for being here. Welcome back to Dressed. Jessica, a very warm welcome back to Dressed. Thank you so much. So pleased to be back. 
Yes, yes. This is, of, of course, your second appearance on the show. You joined us about a year ago, almost exactly, I think, to discuss your book, Making a Spectacle, A Fashionable History of Glasses. And when we wrapped up that conversation, you actually teased that this project was coming out, the one that we're here to talk about today. And the wait was more than worth it, I have to say. I am so excited to talk to you today about the wild, wonderful, and often wacky world of wigs. Um, and this was a rather quick turnaround for you to publish one book and then have another one come out like within the year, pretty much. I'm wondering if there's a specific origin story for this project. Well, I, I think, you know, there's there's two origin stories. One is this topic really aligns with things that I've always been interested in, sort of a heightened form of femininity has always mm -hmm. been an interest for me. My first book was about the history of burlesque. So that was always an area and thinking about sort of gender and its expression and gender as a construction, which wigs very much lend themselves to, was of interest to me. But then there's also the story of talking to my editor and batting ideas around and him saying, you know, my publisher said she'd love to read a book about wigs. And I was like, oh, well, let me... Let me chew on that. And I mean, as soon as I got into just sort of the base research and putting together a proposal, I realized it was very perfect for me, very, very much aligned with a lot of work I was already doing and thinking about. So it it flowed right out. But it came as much from, from the uh, editorial process as it did. So it's not like I had, you know, a wig manuscript bouncing around uh, before this. It really was like, well, this seems like an opportunity to get into something that aligns with all of my interests. And then there was a book. Yes. <laughs> well, well, we are so glad that you did. Um, I, I have to say it is spectacular and it is spectacularly illustrated. Um, I think we'll speak about that more in a little bit later. But um, I want to talk about how you open up the book. Um, you open up the book with the following sentiment. You say, it's not a wig, it's a transformation. A wig has something extra. It is a crown, a time machine, a passport. It is a disguise. It is the real you. And as long as there has been fashion, there has been the wig. And this sets us up quite nicely to start perhaps not just centuries ago, but millennia ago, perhaps. Where would you like to begin our cultural history of the wig today? I mean, I think you have to begin at the beginning in Africa and in Egypt. And that mm -hmm. was another thrilling aspect of this history and this story to me, because I, I felt like this was a story, an object, if you will, a material culture that could get me out of always being in New York and Paris, which I feel mm -hmm. like is very typical of fashion history and kind of think a little more broadly about who makes fashion and why and what that means to people. So the story of the wig really begins in ancient Egypt uh, to begin with in the aspect of its sort of ritual and ceremonial use within the religious expression of ancient Egypt. But it moves from there into the sort of fashionable world of that place as well, which is to say it mm -hmm. starts as kind of strictly 
a royal expression, but it starts to move down in the society to where more and more people have access and it becomes the way that people dress. And that is where the story begins. And one of the things that's, you know, significant, there is a wellness culture. We would call it a wellness yes. culture. Uh, I don't think I don't think the ancient Egyptians would have called it a wellness culture. That's not the language. But there was a sort of culture around beauty and bodily care and hygiene as a cultural practice, as a ritual practice, as even a magical practice. And that really struck and excited me. And the wig was part of that because it was part mm -hmm. of ritual and performance and expression, but also it was part and parcel of a lot of other beauty practices that really emerged from ancient Egypt. You know, the use of coal on the eyes, the use of sort of lipstick, the sort of keeping of a vanity and, and supplies with you. Those things all really have their origins there, as does the wig. You also get really sort of incredible early technology of the wig starting there as well. Like the, the making process, uh, continues. And there are practices that were used in ancient Egypt that are still in play in the making of wigs, in the fashioning of hair generally today that come from that place. Well, and there's a very specific illustration that I, I think that touches on this point of a wig that was found in a burial. Oh, the Princess Nani. Uh, yes, the Princess yes, yes. Nani, yes, she, well, I think she, her mummy, um, in and her wig are a part of the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the wig was found under the head of the mummy. And so that's how we know it was hers and that she was taking it to the afterlife because they packed, they packed heavy for the afterlife in ancient Egypt. And so this was one of the pieces and it was a human hair wig that was set mm -hmm. with beeswax and made of many braids sort of, you know, coming together. And there's also an illustration of her in her Book of the Dead that shows her wearing this wig, although it looks very different from the wig. It's very stylized and symmetrical, you know, in the typical form of ancient Egyptian art, whereas the wig has a more naturalistic quality that I think is born both of time, but also reflects the yeah, they're not sort of all made of Art Deco lines, these humans mm -hmm. or their wigs from this world. Uh, that was a great piece, and I was really excited to find a image of it dressed on a mannequin, which is not necessarily something you typically see. And indeed, I think there was, you know, I, I had to have a back and forth, you know, and discussion about using this image because it was dressing from the 1970s. And it's very chic 1970s style. I mean, I, I see it, but I don't know if that's exactly how it would have been worn. But it was mm -hmm. wonderful to have a picture of it on a, a head, a mannequin, to sort of show what it looked like and to give a sense of the tactile nature of it as well. Yeah, I actually went back and I think I did like a triple take at that spread because it's it's the 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 art in the Book of the Dead, um, the the wig spread out and then it dressed on a mannequin head and I was like, whoa! Like yeah. all of these little pieces coming together, it was it was supremely special. So thank you for that. It's a wonder. It's a wonderful piece. And last time I went to the Met, the wig was out. So oh wow, I mean, in wonder, the Egyptian area, in the Egyptian room, yeah. 
may visit it. Cool. Well, also too, um, our listeners are of course history buffs. So it will be no surprise that later Egyptian dynasties had ties to ancient Rome. Yet you know that wigs had a fundamentally different meaning in Rome than in Egypt. How so? Well, a couple of a couple of ways. I think you know the kind of sort of heavy, very full, exaggerated, and I would call it even obvious wig was an Egyptian tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. I think what's fascinating about Egyptian wigs, and especially the way that they're made, is that the uh, the seam line, if you will, the parting of the wig was put together very obviously. You know, not, they're not trying to hide the fact that it's a wig and imitate the parting of natural hair, but instead they're sort of showing off the braiding and the construction of the wig. Um, in Rome, wigs weren't as typically worn in the period where we sort of transition into Rome's dominance. They definitely wouldn't have been worn by men. To lose one's hair as a man in Rome was sort of a signifier of weakness. The reason that Caesar had that comb over, if you will, uh, that that we always, t- you know, the C- typical Caesar haircut was because Julius Caesar was trying to hide his hair loss. And there are yeah. other stories of specific emperors who did wear wigs, but I almost wouldn't call it a wig. It's more of a toupee, and it was meant mm-hmm. to look real. It was meant to hide the hair loss. So you wouldn't have found a man in Rome admitting to wearing a wig. And then there's an ebb and flow of when women wear wigs as well. There are periods mm-hmm. where the blonde wig, for example, is associated with sex workers and indeed by law was imposed on sex workers, either a blonde wig or dyed blonde hair. But then there are periods where wigs are worn more often. It's interesting to look at someone like Cleopatra, who moves mm-hmm. between the Egyptian and the Roman world. And when in Rome, she does not wear wigs. She dresses her oh, hair closely, naturally. When she's in Egypt, she wears wigs. I think of her as, in a sense, code shifting between these two cultures. Uh, around, I'd say, AD 60, 80, you start to see mm-hmm. examples of Roman matrons wearing wigs yes. that are clear enough that you can even read them, in a sense, in sculpture. Uh, through aspects, well, a couple of aspects. There are, there are some tricks and tells to finding wigs. Maybe we can get into that later. But we know that in 60, 80 AD, there were a lot of royal Roman women who were starting to wear wigs and these complicated hairstyles that were part of why wigs came into being for them because they were difficult to set. They used like heat tubes and really, maybe that's better done off the head. So you have these sort of hair pieces and additions that are typical. And the hair that they're using is coming from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, I even read of, in Richard Corson's amazing book on the history of hair, uh, sort of interweaving blonde and black hair within a wig. So you're doing something very obvious. You know, no one, no one really mm-hmm. has that hair. And that's how you know there's this excitement about the wig um, but it was very feminine, and it was, I think, as much an expression of Rome's conquering impulse because mm-hmm. of where the hair was coming from, 
which mm -hmm. in the case of this blonde hair was likely coming from the Franks and the Gauls when Julius Caesar famously defeated the Gauls who wore their blonde hair very long, the warrior class, that's how they wore their hair. Julius Caesar had them cut their hair as a sign of submission to him. You have a lot of slaves coming into Rome from all of this, mm -hmm. and some of them are literally taken into households and their hair is harvested for the matrons who run the household, who are sort of keeping these people in part to take their hair. So it's, uh, I call that chapter when I talk about that transition into Rome, Dangerous Blondes, because mm -hmm. there's this aspect of uh, an expression of dominance, colonialization, conquering that is built empire. into the hair that is <laughs> empire. It's empire hair, and it's part of yeah. the appeal of it. Whereas we don't know, or I wasn't able to suss out, as much about where the Egyptians got their hair, which wasn't mm. always human hair, by the way. Human hair was and remains, I think, the, the pinnacle of a lot of wig making. But you could have plant fiber, flax, you could have straw, you could have animal hair. So all these other things were options as well. Um, but in Rome, the human hair has this specific association with Rome as this conquering nation. And yeah. I think when wigs sort of start to fade in the early Christian era, some of that has to do with the Christian rejection of Roman rapacious vanity. Mm -hmm. There's this connection that transitions from ancient Egypt to ancient Rome, and then pulling into, you know, what we would start to begin calling the quote unquote early modern era, right? Um, let's talk about the monarchs that we see in the 16th and 17th century, um, when the wig really remains this marker of class and status, and um, it, it regains another measure of fashionability again. Who were some of the icons of this period who are wearing wigs? And how did the art of wig making differ, if at all? in the 16th and 17th century uh, versus the ancient world? So I think one big difference is the Egyptian wigs were typically based on braids. Um, mm -hmm. And a braid would be made and then looped through the netting of the wig and sort of tied back on itself, put together with a little beeswax. Whereas the wigs you start to see in the 16th and 17th century are made by putting single hairs onto a, a line, a sort of fringe, creating a fringe of hair and creating multiple fringes of hair to construct the wig, which could go over a net or could go over a goatskin cap. So you start to see um, sort of more detailed work with the individual hairs, which meant a mm -hmm. different kind of harvesting of the hair. You had to treat it differently. All of the hair has to be running one direction, the right direction, mm -hmm. in order to make that work and it won't seize up on itself. So you do get, I think, some more developed or refined technologies of wig making in the 16th and 17th century. You also see that time after really a long period where women's hair might be covered entirely, um, going into a, a place where women's hair is revealed again, uncovered, starts to get more dramatic. And that's when you see royal personages, queens, 
and kings embrace the wig. I mean, if we talk about icons of wig wear, Queen Elizabeth I, baby. Absolutely. I mean, she could wear the hell out of a wig. And she committed to the style in part because of the iconography that she was building and constructing around herself as a monarch. And the wig was really effective for that. And I think that's why it was so associated with royals in this period, especially in the 16th century. It's very much uh, a marker of status, a marker of privilege, but it comes across great in the paintings that are then going to be the basis for the prints that are going to be distributed far and wide and make this royal a aspirational personage. And that's also mm. what starts to make the wig come back because then courtiers will also want to wear a wig like that. And the sort of up and coming early bourgeoisie will want to imitate this style as well. So it starts with the royals, but it trickles down to the upper classes who can afford wigs. It's also interesting that period, I think, you know, you can especially look at Queen Elizabeth I for this, uh, that you have even women who aren't wearing wigs will want their hair to look like a wig because they are imitating or relating to their monarch. And you see that with men in wigs as well. I'm thinking of uh, Henry III of France, who apparently lost his hair due to over-dyeing. Uh, mm. So he had he had treated his hair poorly, and, and he lost some hair. And so he developed a sort of turban-like hat that had a fringe of false hair around it. Um, and when he started wearing that, his courtiers started to wear that. And so you see like wigs sort of traveling out from the courts in that way. Um, when you get into the 17th century, that's a really incredible era for men's wig wearing, yes. more so than women. Yes, it's a good thing. Uh, one of my favorite, like, I don't know, portrait cliches that I discovered in the 17th and 18th century was the combination of a wig and armor. I'm so glad you're going to talk about this painting. Is this the painting <laughs> of André-François Alois de Thé-Hercules that we're speaking of? I mean, he is one and he's amazing because he has all of the wig powder on his shoulder. I don't know. You're going to ask me why. And I'm going to tell you, I could not find out unless it was like a wig flex. Is it a wig yes. flex from the period? I think it is. It's like, I'm so rich. I got my wig. I can just spill powder everywhere. It's coming out of the, 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 the bag tie. It's, it's amazing. I mean, like that sort of tells you something about the gendering of the wig in that period. It, mm -hmm. was, it was a masculine act and it was an act of privilege and it was an act of power to have this kind of wig, but it also started to spread a lot more for men in that period. So much so that one of our histories uh, of the wig is Samuel Pepys, the great diarist, who wrote about having his first wig made. And the way mm. he had it made, which I had not thought of at all, was he had his own hair cut off to make the first wig. <gasps> wow, that is fascinating. I have I never... Mean, I I have never heard of such a thing. 
he, I had no idea, but he wrote but he wrote in great detail. And then he had more wigs made with other hair, but like the first wig, that was apparently a way to do it. And I would imagine a cost effective wig. When you get well, into and I have to say just speaks so much to the wig as an as a fashion item, really. Yeah. I mean, yeah. men were winning at fashion in the 17th century, right? For sure. I mean, it was it was it was more about them at that time. I think, you know, there's there's parody in a sense in the 18th century, but in the 17th century it seemed like men really had the nicest things which were expressive of their power. You also see wigs, obviously, that are made of other hair. And there was one historian who talked about that, you know, a really fancy wig could have up to 10 heads of hair in it. I think that might be a little exaggerated, but it does take a lot of hair to make what historians later called the full-bottomed wig, which was this very yes. long, sweeping curls down over the chest or the armor or whatever you're wearing. Um, and it was... a uh, it was very masculine and, and, you know, they were broing out in their wigs. <laughs> it's a veritable mane of hair. It's yeah. very thick. It's very lustrous. It's, it's, it's all the things. Yes. Yes. It's all the um, things. It's very luxurious. Yes, for sure. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Well, and I just want to touch on the fact that I would say that your book is almost as much about art history as it is fashion history because so many of the visuals um, that you use come to us in the forms of prints, engravings, and sculptures. And um, that's why I was so thrilled that you wanted to mention that that uh, painting that we just mentioned of Andre, who was wearing his armor and his wig. And uh, very briefly, you mentioned, but th- he has wig powder all over his shoulders, right? Yeah. It's very it's quite curious. Um so I want to touch back on this topic of powdering of wigs. Why was this fashionable and what was wig powder made of? Wig powder was initially made of flour. But mm-hmm. as you may know, we also eat flour. And there were riots in 1715 surrounding wealthy people's use of flour in their wigs because there was there was a certain amount of of starvation going on and so then they moved to things that were more based on um starches uh, talcum powders you know any manner of things that you could grind up into this gray white powder that was the most typical thing used um i think you know why powder well part of it there there was a chic to powder, to sort of creating this this look that was very uniform, but it was also part of the styling. So mm-hmm. oh, okay. when you get into powdered wigs, which come in, you know, a lot of the, the 17th century wigs are, are unpowdered, and then you start to see a lot more powder. But there is a whole styling process for the wig. As a matter of fact, one of the appeals of the wig is that you can just take it off and drop it off at your barber and he could wash the wig and style the wig and fix it up and then you would come and pick it up. That was the selling point of wigs to women in the 1960s as well. You just drop it off and we'll take care of your hair. Um, But the styling matter, the material culture of hairstyling uh, involved animal fats, oils, Mm -hmm. Um, you were kind of like creating like gum pomade, like these ways of putting the hair together. And you were really finishing the hair with the powder in a lot of cases. And you start to see more and more of that like powder used as the finishing component for something that's been already styled, uh, the finishing of the look. So it created a look that was appealing. I think part of it was just fashion, but it also had a... Uh, a utility function in holding mm-hmm. these looks together um, for a period of time. Because when you would get the wig, you know, I mean, people weren't washing their hair every day and they, they weren't washing their wig every day. So you needed something that could hold up a bit. Powder helped with that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and also too, um, when we're thinking about these styling products that were being used at the time, there are some matters of hygiene that come into play, especially when we're looking at animal fats. Um, I, I think that this will come as no surprise to many people. Um, how did that turn problematic in some cases? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, a sort of historical costumer, and we were talking about there was, you know, like that wigs could support fleas, for example, you know, and that was a criticism, like especially of women who were overdoing their hair and in trouble mm -hmm. with some moralist or satirist for it. And we were like, well, you know, everyone had fleas then. I mean, in part, the wig came into fashion to combat lice because mm -hmm. lice doesn't live as well on a wig as it does on the human head. So you're really addressing a hygiene problem. But at the same time, there were all these sort of horror stories about wigs, like that there was available at the hairdresser a sort of metal cage that an 18th century woman could put around her fully constructed head to keep mice out. There was the <laughs> idea that you've created this massive structure that's sort of built and enclosed around the head and then there's the back scratcher that you're going to need to use to get in there as you're supporting little colonies of insects within um there's a fairly famous letter from the 1770s that purports to be a young man who's gone to the hairdresser with his older aunt and tells this disgusting story of him, the hairdresser cracking the hair open and that there's all these little vermin and insects like crawling out and that it stinks and all of this. I mean, I'm sure that happened. I do think there's, you got to take it with a little grain of salt and a right. little grain of misogyny because I feel like that's part of it. I also think that that applied to hair that had been left too long. If you were right. a very wealthy woman in the late 18th century, where you have not so much wigs, but elements of false hair combined with the natural hair to create these gigantic wedding cake hairs of the, of the late 18th century, if you were a wealthy woman, you were having your hair fixed and redone fairly regularly. If you were not yes. as wealthy, you might get that hair done with some beef tallow and some flour and all sorts of things dressed on it. And you might leave it in for, for too many weeks at a time. And I think that's where the hygiene issue really emerged. But I always think yeah. of it in terms of like, I mean, it was filthy. It was filthy in the 18th century. We would not have enjoyed it. We would not have been able to deal with just the general level. So I don't know if wigs are that many steps up. There were issues. There were stories. There yeah. were rumors. You tell on your head. There's I don't always know. myths in fashion history that are just waiting to be busted, and we love to do that yeah. on the podcast. So yeah. <laughs> um, so we have been touching very briefly on this 18th century style, um, the later 18th century style known as the poof, which is infamously associated with Marie Antoinette. Wigs reached perhaps their most epic proportion of all time during this period. Could you tell us a little bit about the poof, how that look was achieved, and also 
the incredible rise of the celebrity hairdresser during the 18th century. Okay. Well, so the book did rise slowly during the period of a lot of writing and self-promotion by hairdressers really for the very first time by name. Le Gros de Rumini, I hope I'm not mangling his name. Le Gros de Rumini was one of the significant figures uh, right before the reign of Marie Antoinette. Um, I believe he was actually crushed to death at one of her wedding celebrations, but that's, that's, that's later. Before that, he was a remarkable hairdresser who drew, made dolls of, trained hairdressers in his style. So he mm. was really promoting his work uh, in the world of Paris in a way that could see that it was distributed more widely. And he really starts to bring the hair a little bit higher. And he didn't necessarily do wigs. It wasn't so much about wigs in the late 18th century unless you needed a wig. As a matter of fact, in the late 18th century, the ideal was your natural hair. So Marie Antoinette very proudly wore her natural hair most of the time. But when you start to dig into those hairstyles and how they're made, you realize that there's a lot of help. So to construct the poof, you would need a hair pad uh, because it was going to go two to three feet over your head. So the, yes. even if you had long natural hair, it kind of had to have an architecture at its base. That was a Absolutely. pad typically constructed of wool with silk wrapped around it. I've actually seen some great diagrams. They really are like architecture. They're very sort of tightly composed pieces, sometimes even with anchor points where you're gonna put other elements into the hair or maybe attach further additional hair pieces. That's the other thing about the poof is that you do have, of course, elements like chiffon could be woven into the top or lace or ribbons, all of this fabric. Uh, but you would also have pre-made curls called buckles mm -hmm. that you could then attach and sort of run up the side of the poop. So, you know, it's funny, Le Gros de Rumini was originally a cook. And so oh. I always thought that he was kind of making a cake. He was making a confection out of hair. And that's really influential in how the hair is made in the late 18th century. But it was ideally a lot of real hair. But mm -hmm. if it was event hair, then you got to go all in, right? You got to put a whole, like, there's a, an account of a woman in mourning who'd had, like, a whole graveyard installed on the top. Oh, wow. There's, of course, the very famous uh, hairstyle that has the uh, three-mast ship atop of it mm -hmm. that was celebrating a French victory uh, over the British as part of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, there's a great account of one woman, uh, she was a baroness, I believe, Oberkirsch. Oh my God, correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, she had a hair, hairstyle done where she had tiny bottles filled with water assembled all throughout her hair and then put a little flower in each bottle of water. And so to have that happen on your head, you're going to have a lot of structural elements, even if ideally you're using a lot of your own hair. Now, the yeah. other aspect of wigs in the late 18th century is if you don't have all that hair, 
you still want to achieve that ideal. And so wigs were a big part of that. If you wanted this aspirational hair, but were, let's say, a woman who'd experienced an illness, heck, a woman who'd experienced, you know, a couple of pregnancies, which mm-hmm. if that is, you know, if you've been through a pregnancy, sometimes your hair just starts shedding all off your head. It's crazy. And so you still want to be a fashionable and part of society. So a wig can help you with that. hmm yeah. Well, this extreme artifice that we have just been speaking of, um, you know, was part and parcel of late 18th century high style. And it became a point of political derision in France in particular. And we see a lot of this discourse evidenced in satirical print culture of the period. And your book contains many fantastic examples of satirical prints. Do you have a couple that you would like to mention? I'm a huge fan of fashion satire, by the way. <laughs> I I mean, I there so there was tons of it. And that was a great way to look at wigs because in a sense you get uh, one of the values of a satire to me and this goes, you know, from 18th century France and England into like sort of mocking portrayals of beatniks in the late 1950s is the exaggeration illustrates real cliches and i think that's what makes them so useful they make it helps you understand it because this satirical eye is dissecting and diagramming the practices in a way that we can go back and read always with a grain of salt of course Mm -hmm. so my favorites are matthew and mary darling who ran the macaroni print shop uh Mm -hmm. so-called because their prints satirizing the macaroni culture of uh, England in the 1770s uh, were so popular that, that, that it just became what the shop was called. But there's a couple of pieces that are, I think are amazing. I, I think my absolute favorite, it was, a, it was a cover option for me, is one called The Flower Garden. And it portrays this type of poof hairstyle that goes almost a body's length above the head and has a full flower garden composed atop it and running down it. And I think what I like about the Darley Prince that that really exemplifies is even though they were satirizing fashion culture, they let you love it too. Mm -hmm. Like you could find it appealing while still thinking it was silly. Both of those emotions could coexist about a darling print, which is, I think, what made them so appealing. You know, you could sort of embrace fashion culture, but but with a little bit of distance and like, well, I that's you know, that's crazy. I would never do that. But but it was still very How appealing. Amusing. How amusing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I love their work. There's incredible macaroni prints as well because there was a men's hair tradition that involved a similar built-up hairstyle. Um, Those are really a little more vitriolic, I think, Mm -hmm. Um, and more exaggerated. One of the things as I started to look at fashion plates next to the satirical images was like, I don't know if these Darley prints are that far off. Like, hair did get towering and exotic and you know over the top literally the macaroni prints not the darley ones but some other designers 
uh, had this this edge of nastiness to them and were much more yeah. exaggerated. It's almost like a quality of skewering them, you know. Yeah. Like, for sure. There's a hostility, and I think it's a hostility that evokes a sort of coming separation of, of gender and, and a coming separation of separate spheres for men and women. And in mm. some sense, I feel like the macaronis were kind of a, a last hurrah of men and women being equally ostentatious and it is being skewered by this. And when you look at that next to, and a, I have a miniature of Causeway who was a member of the macaroni clubs who is definitely a macaroni and his hair is nothing like the satirical prints of the macaronis, which has again, hair going up a human height above. Right. Jessica, thank you for your captivating history of the wig thus far. I mean, I am a little bit blown away, pun intended, April, right now. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, some men in the 17th century were cutting their hair to use said hair to make their own personal wig. That is so fascinating. (laughs) I mean, that really expresses the ultimate power of fashion, I guess. And dress listeners, there are more of these fascinating tidbits to come as Jessica is going to rejoin us on Thursday for part two to discuss the marketplace for human hair during the 19th century, the role of wigs, hair weaving, and extensions in black salons. And, but of course, we cannot leave these episodes without talking about drag culture. Yes. So stay tuned for that. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. It's Pride Month, friends, so I'm sure many of you will be celebrating by way of wig very soon next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you, so if you would like to write to us, you can do so at hello at dressedhistory.com. You can also DM us on Instagram, which is dressed underscore podcast, and this is, of course, where we will post lots of fun wig content this week. If you would like to find the specific content for this episode on Instagram, you can use the hashtag dressed302. That's dressed302. More dressed and fabulous wigs coming your way Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of Dressed Media. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.